began a series through the book of Matthew, and this is now message number four in that series, entitled, The King is Coming. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And so I'm going to read verses 1 to 2 as we get started. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when I was growing up, there was a man that lived down the road from us, and um, we lived essentially at about the end of the end of the road, and so to go anywhere, we had to go past his house. Um, I, I had never knew what he did for a living. He seemed to be always at home, even though he was, uh, though he seemed like such an old man to me. He was probably in his early 30s um, at the time. Um, and I also n- never knew what his name was. I still to this day have no idea what his name was. We always called him Richard Simmons, and that's because that's exactly who he looked like, and that's pretty much exactly who he dressed like every time that we saw him. So I can remember during the summertime that we would pass by his house and be going to baseball practice or something. I'd pass by his house, and he would be out mowing his grass. And so, uh, you know, it was a whole production. He had, uh, he had his Walkman uh, that was clipped there to the side of his running shorts and big headphones on and, you know, big curly hair going everywhere, usually with a headband or something, uh, had his tennis shoes on. And um, he had this, he would, usually didn't have a shirt on, but he had this big wide belt or band that was around his stomach and I found out that that was called the belly burner belt. Now, I'm not going to ask a show of hands how many have used this particular device, but if I'm accurately informed, the belly burner was invented by a man named Bobby Waldron, and he promoted himself as a personal trainer for celebrities. I don't know which celebrities um, or what all that involved, but that's how he promoted himself. The belly burner was this wide neoprene-type belt that was supposed to work by increasing the heat and your core temperature um, underneath this belt. And so the idea was that this would burn fat and it would lead to uh, having a slimmer waist. Now, one of the great marketing lines for the belly burner was that it could be worn during just any normal activities. You could get up and put it on and and just wear it all day long. So um, it would be at work burning fat in your midsection um, regardless of what you were doing. So you could be um, out for a leisurely stroll. You could be sitting on the couch watching TV. You could be um, even at McDonald's while you're eating a cheeseburger, and this thing is burning fat off of your stomach. Now, I found out that you could still buy these belts today. I, I don't think, though, that they've ever been proven to actually work. Um, they do raise the temperature beneath the belt when it is worn. They, they, do, they do that, and usually 
one of the promos for these things was these thermal imaging, you know, that showed an increase of heat, you know, where this belt was. And they do that if you've ever worn any kind of neoprene uh, for whatever reason. You, you know that to be true. Most likely, they do contribute to some water loss, um, but they've not actually been shown to produce any significant fat loss by wearing the belly burner. Well, the belly burner was just one of a long line of new fads that swept the country for a while. And, you know, if you saw someone wearing one today, you would probably just think it was some kind of a back brace or something, and you you wouldn't think it to be that strange. But imagine that you were at the mall in the 80s, enjoying a rad time with your friends, and somebody shows up wearing one of these things, well, I imagine you would have some questions. They're going around talking about how great this is, how everybody must go get one and, and use it, and you're going to want to know, what is it? What is it? What's it supposed to do? How does it work? How much does it cost? A lot of questions you'd have. Well, when John the Baptist stepped into public view, by the Jordan River north of the Dead Sea, about a full day's journey out from Jerusalem. He cried out with this announcement and a command, and he performed an act of immersion on people in the Jordan River. So was this some new fad that swept through Israel at the time? Now, though there were some things that were different about John, The people's reaction to John actually show us that John's words and actions were not something that was new and unconnected to anything that they had known before. And we'll see that um, hopefully as we go through this passage. Now, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 has presented the genealogy of Jesus, um, has talked about events surrounding his birth and his early infancy. Uh, Jesus was born of, of Mary Uh, with Joseph as his adoptive father. And Matthew has emphasized, as he's opened up this gospel, he has emphasized the Old Testament history of Israel along with all these prophecies concerning them that place Jesus as the fulfillment of the promised Messiah and son of David. Now chapter 2 especially showed how that people responded to Jesus. So Herod was threatened by Jesus. Herod um, was a king, and he certainly didn't want any other king to to rise up and to supplant him um, or to take his place. And so Herod was threatened. He sought to kill him. The Magi, well, they were Gentiles, but nevertheless, they rejoiced at his birth, and they came and brought tribute to him um, and worshipped him as a king. The Jews of Israel were, for the most part, entirely unaware that he had been born into the world. So someone needed to tell them, and someone needed to prepare them to receive their Messiah. And so Matthew has set us up now for the introduction of John the Baptist, or the baptizer, as the word indicates. And Matthew has moved forward from chapter 2 to chapter 3 in about with about... 30 years of of time difference between chapter 2 and 3. 
Um, the beginning of John's ministry, just prior to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, occurring somewhere around about 30 years after they were born. Now, in this brief passage, Matthew connects John's ministry to the Old Testament in several ways. Again, which shows this is not some new fad. John didn't come with some new unheard of thing on the scene in Israel. John came to Israel and he ministered to Israel. And his words and his actions are rooted in the Old Testament that the people of Israel knew. So we read here about immersions. We read about the kingdom. We read about repentance. We read about the Messiah. We read about the day of the Lord. And we read about the new covenant. All right here in these first 12 verses of Matthew chapter number 3. Now it's noteworthy that... John was not questioned about these and what they meant. Nor did he explain them because they knew what he was referring to. They knew what John was talking about. and They knew what John was doing when he showed up here near the Jordan River. Now Matthew clearly indicates that after 400 years of silence, after the completion of the Old Testament, God is here moving redemptive history forward with a great event. So as we look at this passage, there's two parts we want to think about. Verses 1 to 6 that introduce us to John the baptizer and his ministry. And in verses 7 to 12 where he actually has um, a, some of a, something of a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, where John speaks about the wrath to come. So we're going to start here in the, in the first part where John is introduced. Let's look at verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So Matthew introduces John the Baptist or John the baptizer, um, which the word indicates, whom, whom we know from other gospels as well, that he was a cousin to Jesus and he was six months older than Jesus. John, we find out from the Gospel of Luke, John was of the tribe of Levi. His father, whose name was Zacharias, was a priest. And he was a priest that was a part of the course of Abiah. And you read about that in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 5. Now, the course of Abiah was one of the 24 divisions of the Levites for temple service that was established by David in 1 Chronicles chapter number 24. So you can go read all about that um, if, if you wish. But he, his father, Zacharias, was a priest in that course of Abiah, one of those 24 courses that David established. We also read there that John's mother, Elizabeth, was of the family of Aaron. Um, so John was a, was a Levite through and through. His father was a priest, his mother um, a, a daughter of Aaron, so to speak. And we're told that John was from the wilderness of Judea. Now, this doesn't mean that John was some sort of a hermit, that he was living in, in complete isolation um, under a rock somewhere um, out in the, in the desert. Rather, it's that he was, he was outside and away from Jerusalem. He, he was outside and away from any cities. He is out in the very rural area of Judea where there would have been very small villages and, and um, much fewer people and, and uh, probably much more distance between them and things. And so this is where 
This is where John grew up. This is where John um, came from as he came to the Jordan River. And we read that he came preaching, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, the word that is used here, caruso, the, the, the word does not refer to delivering a formal address of information with logical divisions and, and all of that sort of thing. That's not what this word referred to. The word that is used here refers to heralding or proclaiming as a public herald. So it was a, a way, it was, the, it was the means of delivering news publicly at a time. And you've maybe seen uh, some television show or, or some movie that, you know, is set in some um, historic time and you had the town crier that would go about and, you know, hear ye, hear ye, and, and, and all that sort of thing. And so these, this is how public announcements would be made. Um, announcements of events, announcements of new laws, announcements of new taxes, um, announcements of important dates or the arrival of important people or various, various things that, that needed to be announced publicly was done by the means of a herald. And so this word, when he says John came preaching, it says he, he came heralding. He came as a public herald and he was making an announcement for the public of Israel. John came crying out in public to announce an event, the coming of the Messiah, the nearness of the kingdom, and to issue relevant commands such as the command to repent. Now, John was called the Baptist or the baptizer and uh, or, or we could say the immerser, because he baptized or immersed people. And we'll talk more about that here in, in a couple moments as we, as we go forward. Verse number 2, and saying, so this is now giving us John's heralded message, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So th- John's message and this is certainly a sample of, of John's message. And we, through the other Gospels and such, we read of some other things that John had to say publicly. But Matthew's emphasizing how that, how that John came heralding this message. And this message was a command, repent. And it was also that command to repent was connected to an announcement that for or because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, for the kingdom of heaven to be at hand means that it was near or it was close by. It doesn't mean that it's arrived, and John in no way says that it's arrived. One of the reasons for that is that his mission was to prepare Israel for the kingdom by preparing them for the king. In other words, you could say the the kingdom is ready. The kingdom is, is close. The kingdom is, is nearby. And, and what we'll find as we go on studying in the gospel is that the kingdom would have come if they had received their Messiah, so to speak. But, of course, we know that they didn't. But that raises the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? And Matthew is using language here, kingdom of heaven, which he uses quite frequently in this gospel, he will sometimes say kingdom of God or something else, but he, he usually uses kingdom of heaven. And this is a phrase that actually has its origins back in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, there's several verses that you can read about there. 
And it refers to this kingdom that is essentially from heaven. It's this kingdom that comes from heaven to earth. That is what is, that's what the kingdom of heaven is referring to. It is the same kingdom as the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. Sometimes what we refer to as the millennial kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and so on. This is the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. And that kingdom promise in the Old Testament was the promise of a gathered and a restored national Israel consisting of all the tribes and the land that had been promised to Abraham back in places like Genesis 13 and 15 and so on. Now there is a lot of confusion about the kingdom today. But we can easily keep it straight by simply thinking of the kingdom in three terms. King, people, and land. King, people, and land. And all three things are essential for the kingdom to be present or to be here. Well, the king is, of course, is the promised son of David, the anointed son of God who will be installed on David's throne in Mount Zion. The people is the united tribes of Israel, descended those descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and sometimes referred to particularly as the remnant of Israel, the believing or faithful remnant of Israel. And the land is the land of Israel, the land promised to Abraham, and described, again, if you look at Genesis 15, you can see a description of the boundaries of that land. Sometimes we refer to it as the land of Canaan or, or the land of, of Israel in the, in the Middle East. It, it is a particular land. So again, you can, you can really keep the kingdom straight, that what's being spoken of, if you just think of king and people and land. And all of these things are essential to constitute a kingdom, and that is the kingdom that John is talking about. That, in fact, is the kingdom that those of Israel in the first century, when John first appeared and began heralding this message, that's the kingdom they were looking for. Now, they didn't have all those prophecies figured out right. I mean, there was quite a few generations of some traditions and some speculations and uh, some Haggitic uh, translations and things that had gotten, you know, interpretations that had gotten mixed in there. So, so they didn't have all those prophecies figured right. But they were expecting a kingdom, a physical kingdom in the land of Israel with all the tribes united and restored under the son of David. They were expecting that kingdom. And that is the kingdom that John is talking about, that Jesus will talk about before we get too far, in fact, in the next chapter. So they were, they were uh, expecting this kingdom. And you notice how that John simply is making an announcement, the kingdom, it's at hand. It's near. It's, it's close by. John didn't explain to them that he meant some other kingdom. No, 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 no. You're, you're expecting a physical kingdom. This is, the kingdom is different. It's something else. No, John didn't say that. John said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, even though that that kingdom was promised to Israel, the coming of that kingdom had certain contingencies in the Old Testament. And primarily, the contingencies being Israel's repentance and reception 
of the Messiah. So this is why John commanded them to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is why he gave that command. To repent, which has its roots in the Old Testament as well. And as you go through the prophets, you'll find prophet after prophet calling the people of of Israel to repentance. The word means to, to change your mind. And we can see contextually within the passages of the Old Testament calling for repentance and such, that it, in, that it indicates a return to the Lord. The prophets were, would show how they had departed from the word of the Lord, and they were calling the people of Israel to return to the Lord. Repentance was prophesied as necessary before the kingdom comes, and this is in places like Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 to 45. Jeremiah chapter um, 3, verses 12 to 18. And, and a certain set of very familiar verses. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, which are all things that God said he would do to them in their exile. He says, if my people, who's he talking about? He's talking about Israel which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now we're getting close to another election year and another election cycle coming up and we're going to hear well-meaning Christian people giving us these verses all the time, telling us that this this is the prescription for America. These verses are about the repentance of Israel and the coming of the kingdom. Because the the Bible also prophesies that there is a future time they are going to repent. No, they haven't yet, but they are going to. And they're going to receive the Messiah. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. They're going to mourn for him. They are going to repent, and the kingdom will come. So this is why John is preaching a message saying, You must repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was sent by God to prepare Israel for the Messiah and the kingdom. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. So these two verses are giving us a description of John. So first of all, in verse 3, Matthew tells us that John indeed was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, which is what he's quoting from here. He was the forerunner of the Messiah to prepare his way. And we read in verse 4 even about his, um, his appearance, his clothing, and his diet, and all these sort of things. And it sounds very similar to that description we get of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse number 8. And we'll find out a little more about John's ministry as you go further into the gospel. But essentially, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he was the one sent before the Messiah, the Christ, to prepare 
Israel. And of course, they rejected him and all the rest that happened. Verse 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. And verse 6 reads, And were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So John drew a large crowd of, of the people of Israel from the region. And many of them were told they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. So now we want to talk about this word baptized, baptism and, and baptist and all that So here for a minute. So baptize and baptism and, and such, first of all, they're not English words. They are transliterated from the Greek. That is where a, a word in another language is essentially just taken and it is sort of anglicized. It, it is sort of put into English, but that's not actually an English word. And we've got words like that that's come from Latin and come from French and, and, and German and, and what have you. And that's the way that it is. So baptize, baptism, all all the related terms to that, they're not English words. They are transliterated from the Greek. Now, the Greek root word is babto. Babto, and that word means to dip or to immerse. And you have a number of cognates, and cognates would be the family of words that have come from this root. So they're built on this root word, um, and they are related to it, and they draw their meaning from it um, in some way. So you have all these cognates like baptizo, baptisma, um, baptistes, baptismos, imbapto, all all of these words that appear in the New Testament and are also used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. All of these words are words that are used to describe the dipping of vessels in water like taking a cup or a plate and dipping it in water to clean them or to wash them, the dipping of bread into honey or some other, some other sort of, of um, whatever sort of dipping sauce or something that you might use, the dipping of cloth into a dye solution in order to color it. And so all of, these, all of these things have in common the, the immersion of something in some sort of liquid, some sort of solution or something. But these words are also used, and that's a more secular usage, you might say, of the term. That's just the the common meaning of the word. But these words are also used to describe ritual immersions for purification that were described by the Old Covenant law. So, for instance, the vessels would be dipped. Now, sometimes in our translations, we get the terms washed or bathed, and bathed usually applies more to, to a person's body, but, but we, we get washed or something like that sometimes, but they would be dipped. Clothes would be dipped. People would be dipped or would be immersed. And again, that's where we generally see wash themselves or something like that. Um, but, but they would be immersed in order to be purified from various uncleannesses, like, like in Leviticus chapter 15. You can read about a number of those instances. So for instance, if a, if a person came into contact with the carcass of a dead animal, one of the things that would have to be done is that they would have to immerse themselves. They would have to immerse their bodies in water in order to um, fulfill purification. And then there would be a waiting period and all, all, their, all that sort of thing. Sometimes certain uncleannesses might involve an offering that would have to be brought. But one of the things that would have to be done would that they would have to immerse themselves in water in order to be purified in order to return to a state of cleanness or purification. And the priests also, they would 
have to immerse their bodies. They would have to be sometimes washed or cleansed or purified, it might be said. But they would have to immerse their bodies uh, along with washing their clothes and various other things for priestly service. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 8 and, and Leviticus chapter 16, some of these different places. So the writer of Hebrews, so we say, well, how, you know, is, is what is the difference? You know, John is immersing people. And in the Old Testament, it was common for people to be immersed because of these washings for um, purification. And so is this the same? Is it different? And, and, well, it's connected. There's some similarity and there's some dissimilarity. But one of the ways that we see the connection is actually if you, if you look at like Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 2 or Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 10 because the writer there uses the term baptismos and he's actually talking about, and it's very clear as you read the context, he's actually talking about these immersions in the old covenant law, these washings of the flesh that are referred to. And again, using the very same term as what we see here in Matthew chapter number 3. So John came, the immerser, meaning that he performed this act, and the act that he was performing was not unknown. But he clarified that it was a symbolic act connected to repentance and preparation for the Messiah. And we see that down in verse number 11. Now Matthew also notes here in verse 6, the confession of their sins that accompanied these baptisms. In other words, the fruits of repentance. And these, again, these were also prophesied in the Old Testament. That Leviticus um, 26 reference is one of those places where you see that as well. So there were many who understood and they received John's message. Then we come to the second part of this passage in verses 7 to 12 where we get John speaking about the wrath to come and its relation to his mission and message. Verse number 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, there were many Pharisees and Sadducees that came out to hear John, and and presumably it seems that they came um, to be baptized uh, potentially as well. They're wanting to see what was going on, and really at this point, they didn't, like, they didn't come out to shut John down. They didn't come out to question him. Um, they didn't come out to argue with him. I mean, they, they came out, and then, of course, uh, John confronts them, and, and then we, later we see a number of, of conflicts between them. But they came out to, to see what was, John was doing. John identifies them as a generation of vipers. Now, the root for that word, generation, was used repeatedly in chapter number 1 where where we were told that one begat another. That's the root of that word for generation. In other words, he said they were the offspring of snakes. So Jesus we read about in chapter number 1, he was the son of Abraham and the son of David, but these Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the sons of snakes. Jesus would later use the very same phrase um, to them as well. So if the Pharisees had come out for preparation, John is asking them, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Now his reference to the wrath to come is to the future day of the Lord. 
Malachi wrote of that day when he asked Israel if they were truly ready for the Messiah to come. We recently went through the book of Malachi, and they were complaining that the Messiah had not come. And Malachi, Malachi says, are you really ready? Do you really understand what that means for the Messiah to come? Are you really ready for that? So he told them about the day of the Lord, but he also told them in Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 5 that Elijah would first come before that day came. Well, John exhorts them to produce fruits. Notice verse 8. Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. He exhorts them that they must produce the fruits of repentance. In other words, the fruits of repentance, the, the confession of sins, the return to the word of the Lord from which they had greatly departed as is made obvious through the Gospels. Now again, we, we talked a little bit about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, some of these different groups that we, that we, that we meet with. And you have to understand, in Israel, according to popular opinion, the, these, these were the heroes. I mean, they were, they, were the, the, um, they were the spiritual leaders of Israel. They were thought to be um, something that, that everyone of, of Israel should be trying to live up to their example. The, these are the righteous ones. These are the ones that are leading us in, in the ways of God. And John calls them sons of snakes. And says, you need to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. So we know from reading the Gospels and, and going on, we know that, yes, they had departed from the word of God greatly, but that was very different than what the public perception of the Pharisees especially were at that time in Israel. Verse number 9, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So John says you can't rest in physical descent from Abraham as though that alone prepared them for the Messiah and the kingdom. And again, you think back to Malachi when he speaks to the people of Israel. You're, you're complaining against God because the Messiah hasn't come. Are you really prepared? Do you realize what that's going to mean? Do you realize what that's going to mean for Israel? Because the day of the Lord is a judgment on Israel. It, it is a great time of purging and cleansing of Israel and, and, yes, of the nations of the world as well, but do you realize what that means for Israel? Then in verse number 10, And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So in verses 10, 11, and 12, John's giving the explanation here. He uses this imagery here in verse 10 of, of an axe at the root of the tree, which essentially is just expressing that, it, that it's ready to be cut down. So, I mean, if you, if you saw a, a, a workman that's out with an axe and he's got it at the root of the tree, you know, it, it, obviously he's ready. He, the tree is about to come down. Um, he's ready to get to work on it. And that's what, that's what John is saying about judgment that's going to come upon Israel. Judgment is ready for those who do not repent. And you notice also how John mentions fire. And in each verse, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12, he's going to refer to fire in connection with what he said was fleeing from the wrath to come a couple of verses earlier. The judgment of fire is associated with the day of the Lord and with his comings. Places like Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and, and later into chapter 3 down through verse 4. But we also read in the Old Testament how that judgment precedes the kingdom places like isaiah chapter 1 
verse 27, chapter 4 and verse 4, chapter 5 and verse 16, chapter 13, verses 6 to 19, chapter 42 and verse 2. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 33 verses 14 and 16 and again we get this association with fire and purging Malachi chapter 3 verse 23 and Zechariah chapter 13 and verse number 9 and John says in verse 11 I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance but he that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I am not worthy to bear he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire John explains that his baptism is merely in water. In other words, he's acknowledging here that it's a symbolic act. It's a symbolic act that is showing repentance. It's showing preparation, the need for preparation. But the Messiah, who is the coming one that John refers to here, he says he will baptize with the Spirit, and he will also baptize with fire. Now he's referring here, obviously, to on the one hand, the new covenant promise of the Spirit um, that can that can only come. John has John has no power to to um, give the Spirit or anything of that nature. And then on the other hand, he's referring to the judgment, the judgment by fire when he comes. Notice the imagery in verse number twelve: whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff which un, with unquenchable Fire. So here John uses the imagery of a harvest, which is very similar to places like Amos chapter 9 and verse number 9 that describe this same time. So the judgment aspect here is separating the chaff from the wheat and then burning up the chaff with fire. And then the wheat is gathered into the barn. And this is the imagery of the future ingathering of Israel, the remnant who has been purged and purified from Israel. So as we look at this passage, this introduction of John, the beginning of his ministry, and we'll see a, we'll see a little more about John. He pretty quickly fades um, from the scene. But the ministry and the message of John the Baptist show a fulfillment of Old Testament promises, but also shows a break with what was modern Judaism at the time. In other words, it's just an, an, an early indication that Jesus was not coming after John. He was not coming to merely reform Judaism. He wasn't coming to take all the traditions of the elders and all of the traditions of the rabbis and all the generations of all the practices and all the things that, that they had done and added to the law and all of these sort of things, Jesus wasn't coming to merely reform that. He wasn't going to put new wine into that old wineskin. Jesus came to fulfill the word of his Father and his purpose with the nation that he chose, which he made from Abraham. So the message of repentance that John preached and Jesus preached and his apostles would go on to preach and that we are to even preach today, it is a message of change. He, John called Israel to leave their traditions, to leave their works righteousness, and to receive 
their Messiah. And that message today, again, that we are charged to preach from the Word, it's still a message of change. So just just like the Pharisees had a rude awakening when they thought, you know, well, maybe Jesus is the Messiah, but then they find out, well, his idea is not to, to come and exalt them. His idea is not to come and to take all of their good ideas and all of their good works and just make all of their dreams come true. That wasn't what he came for. And, of course, they rejected him and, and killed him because of it. Well, similarly, though we are not of Israel today, Jesus did not come into the world to make our dreams come true. He didn't come to make us healthy and wealthy in this life. He didn't come to fulfill our agendas. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. People who are, as Paul described it in the book of Ephesus, or the book to the Ephesians, alienated from God, estranged from God, separated from God, outside of his blessing. So Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and all who repent and all who believe in him will receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life, and that's whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile.